Welcome, and thank you for joining us on our latest installment of Women at Ropes Talk, a podcast series brought to you by the Women's Forum at Ropes and Gray. In this podcast, we spotlight extraordinary women with successful careers and interesting lives and who make a positive impact in their workplaces and communities. We feature women attorneys at Ropes and Gray in conversation with prominent women clients, industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and others. The podcast centers on these prominent women's careers, what's led to their successes, the challenges they faced, and the hard-earned wisdom they've acquired. I'm Christine Moundis, a healthcare partner at Ropes and Gray based in New York and co-head of the firm's Digital Health Initiative. On this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Emily Carlberg, who's based in San Francisco. Emily, to get things started, could you please introduce yourself and provide a brief overview of your practice? Of course. My name is Emily Carlberg. I'm a counsel in the Ropes and Gray Intellectual Property Transactions Group. Um, my practice focuses on complex IP and technology matters that arise in the context of strategic M&A and private equity transactions and complex divestitures. And I have a particular focus on carve-outs, business integrations, and asset transfers. Great. And who's the special guest that you'll be interviewing on this episode? Katarina Novak, who is the Associate General Counsel at Viking Global Investors, a premier asset management firm. And how did you guys meet and start working together? I was introduced to Katarina through a mutual friend, uh, also a lawyer, and we wound up in a book club several years ago full of women attorneys in New York City. Um, I also worked on several Viking investments with her at my previous firm. Great. And what do you say is the most notable thing about Katerina's career? I think Katerina will speak to this a little bit, but she's developed a remarkable ability to remain calm under pressure. And having worked with her on some complex matters, I know this to be true. I found that this characteristic she's developed has really um, enabled her to inspire confidence not only in her clients and with the other folks on the other side of projects that she's working on, but in lawyers as well. Excellent. With that, I'll turn it over to you and Katerina. All right. Hi, Katerina. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us today. To kick it off, can you just introduce yourself to the listeners uh, with maybe a brief background on your career and what your current role is and what you're up to these days? Sure. So I'm Katerina Novak. Um, I'm currently an Associate General Counsel at Viking Global Investors LP, which is uh, a global investment firm and a registered investment advisor. Um, you know, my career has been probably pretty standard for many, many corporate lawyers. I studied English literature and art history uh, at, at undergrad at UVA. Um, so, you know, learned how to hold my own at cocktail parties, but then had to get real after graduation. Um, I was a paralegal, um, doing commercial real estate, paralegal work right after college, just trying to figure out if I really wanted to go to law school and, um, ended up making that decision, went to Boston University Law School and then ended up at Cravath, which was just an awesome experience for me. Um, I chose corporate law. Um, and never really looked back and was there for about six years. Um, and then I got the job at Viking, which was also an awesome move for me as it turned out. But um, I literally, when I got the job offer, I had to Google like, what is a hedge fund? Cause I had no idea. Um, <laughs> but it's, it turned out, it turned out really well. 
Um, it is a hedge fund. So there's a lot of public trading uh, aspects to the work that I do not handle, but we have a private equity growth equity strategy. Um, you know, like a lot of investment firms over the years uh, created a hybrid strategy right before I started launched in 2015. And then in 2016, I came on and, you know, haven't really looked back since it's been pretty successful for us. I'm on the legal team, but I work with a great investment team um, and just help them negotiate and navigate all the kind of private closing and post-closing matters. Great. Um, Take us back a little bit to your time as a paralegal and what was really attracting you to the law? Well, so the the reason I really was interested in law is uh, I loved law and order um, as a kid. (laughs) the originals, not the spinoffs, not SVU, not not any of that. I like the original uh, Law and Order is where it turned out that like the bookie did it or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So I was always interested in it. I love to read. Uh, I was always an argumentative child. So it always just felt like a natural fit to me. Um, I come from a family of doctors, though. So my mom was very, you know, her only experience of lawyers are personal injury and medical malpractice lawyers. So she was a little bit more hesitant. So I I wanted to check it out first. And I did want to work before going straight to law school, which I think ended up being a good decision. Um, And working at the law firm, I guess it was a lot of just, you know, the skills and being helpful and being on top of things. I really think like what you find um, satisfying about work isn't always super substantive. It's kind of like what skills, and what kind of daily routines make you happy and does it fit in with what you're doing? Um, I really liked, you know, being organized, processing things, being on the phone. At the time, it was like the um, loan syndication bubble was happening. And so we were constantly syndicating these loans um, and backed by commercial real estate uh, security interests. And so it was like a real factory, but there was a lot to do after closing um, in order to perfect the security interest. And the paralegals do all of that. And that is like literally the most important part of the entire process. Um, But we were in charge of that and just making sure following up. I loved that part of being in an office. Um, So for me, I was like, you know, I should go to law school and give it a try. It took me a while in law school to really parse out, like, do I want to be that kind of corporate office? type lawyer versus like litigating in the courtroom. And I was very torn about that for most of law school, but then I had to make a choice and I did. And, you know, I've never really looked back from that. Can you talk about what are you most proud of in your career thus far? Yeah, there's a lot of things. I think one of my favorite stories uh, is, it's a little bit of one of those like corporate lawyer, like back in the trenches warfare stories. But um, I was a senior associate. I had to get on a very intense phone call at two o'clock in the morning. I was, there was no partner on the phone. It was just my client, like 14 lawyers from the other side, the GC of a giant (laughs) public company, the head of the entire firm at a different big law, (laughs) law firm. Um, and my client was just getting absolutely hammered and I really wasn't in a position to help because I hadn't been involved in this part of the negotiation, but I tried my best to kind of, you know, tell them to move on, tell them we were going to, you know, address their concerns, kind of keep the temperature as low as possible. Um, it was like 
probably the most stressful hour and a half of my life. Um, and then later I found out that the, the law partner that was on the phone um, had called my boss and said that, you know, I was did an awesome job and like really kept it together and, you know, was instrumental in kind of keeping that call on track. And I think like for me, that really solidified one of my strengths is just complete and utter calm under pressure. I don't know if I just completely dissociate emotionally, which is possible. <laughs> um, but there have been a few other instances like that where I get compliments on being very, very calm under kind of extreme pressure conditions. So that's such a good strength in the corporate law world, especially on, I mean, how many 2 a.m. phone calls just go totally awry. I hear you. Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about um, some obstacles you faced in your legal career? I think the biggest obstacle um, is kind of knowing what you want and finding your place, at least for me. And I think a lot of that, again, ties into what are your strengths? What makes you happy? Um, and I, that's something I'm still actually kind of working through. Your career progresses naturally, and I'm at the point where if I was at a law firm, probably be making partner. Um, where I'm at currently, you know, I'm senior middle management. <laughs> um, and so there's a big question in my mind. I've just been incredibly lucky in a lot of ways that, like, I haven't faced that many obstacles in my career. I mean, the job at Cravath, like, that was the last year before the financial crisis where coming from Boston University, you wouldn't have been able to get a job there. So I kind of split in as the door was closing shut for a few years. Um, and Viking, likewise, like, you know, kind of stumbled into this job a little bit. Um, so I think the big, the big obstacle is like, what do I want to do in the next 20 years and kind of figuring out what would make me happy? Am I going to be happy being the general counsel at a company or another law firm? I mean, that's the natural next step. But you still got to like figure it out and figure out if you're going to be happy. I think there's, you know, lots of stories of unhappy lawyers um, <laughs> that you hear about. Um, so I think that's the kind of most challenging thing that I find is actually myself and figuring out what I want and what's going to make me happy. Who has had the greatest influence um, or has been the most meaningful or important relationship in your career? There's one partner at Cravath. Um, he's no longer there, who I worked with when I was very, very senior, um, who I think was really important to me in the sense of just really believed in me. Uh, it was the last M&A rotation I was doing there, and we just developed a really good working relationship. He completely trusted me. We still keep in touch. Um, so I think he was very influential. And honestly, my current boss is awesome as well. Um, and I think is teaching me so much um, about kind of that next level of seniority of like what it means to be kind of the top um, legal position in a company. I feel like saying my boss is a little bit of a cop out because we're still working together. Um, but those would probably be the two most influential relationships that I've had. Do you have any strategies for sustaining important relationships, um, check-ins or, you know, anything else that you do? So pre-COVID, yes. <laughs> Pre-COVID <laughs> pandemic and pre-having a baby, um, I would frequently get um, drinks um, or, you know, meet up with former partners or colleagues that I worked with 
you know, I remember I had a great client at Cravath and um, she ended up getting a promotion and I saw it on LinkedIn and I reached out to her and we had coffee and it was great. I think like now post pandemic, I have a, a small child. It just makes it so much harder to reach out. I think a lot of that is coming back. Um, you know, within the past couple of months, I've done a lot more law firm dinners and kind of reconnecting with people who are coming back to the office and coming back into the city. Um, I do set up quarterly reminders a lot of the time because I'm otherwise I will completely forget. Uh, so I find those to be really useful um, for people that I that I know I want to stay in touch with. To switch a little bit to the flip side, um, how have you been involved in mentoring? Um, and what do you see as the importance of mentoring in your career? Mentoring is one of those things that's so, so helpful. And I learned that because I was always terrible at seeking out mentorship. I was always the person who, instead of going to office hours, if I had a question, I would sit and I would research. It would take like seven hours, but I would kind of figure it out on my own or become bored with the question. I like to figure things out on my own. I don't need help. I, you know, do the best I can and I'll just navigate it. I'm not going to, you know, try to seek out help from others. And I think it's stupid. It's a very stupid approach. I think it just, you know, mentorship makes your life so much easier. It's how you find good jobs. It's how you um, learn and grow and especially, you know, early in your career, but throughout your career. Um, so, and I think what's challenging about mentorship is, the onus is almost always on the mentee. You know, I learned very early on, like you can't just get assigned a mentor and then have the relationship be created. Like somebody needs to put in the effort and that really falls on the mentee in the beginning. Um, so what I've done now is, you know, I've done some formal mentoring programs where um, there was one uh, program I did where you get assigned a mentee who's a first generation immigrant uh, college student uh, in the CUNY system. And for two years, you kind of mentor them through internships, getting internships, you know, the soft skills, resumes, how to do interviews, how to behave in an office when you have an internship over the summer. Um, and I think stuff like that is so important. Um, in the legal field, I'm a little bit more just kind of, you know, mentor where those opportunities come. I find that like in the workplace, it's the best when it's kind of organic and you're working with somebody and, you know, you're able to kind of immediately um, give feedback and have an open door and be available for advice. Uh, I find that that's usually kind of the best way. I know at Cravath, we had an assigned mentor system and to me that just never really panned out. What advice would you offer to women who are getting started in their legal careers? I think for me, it's uh, it's like pick your battles, but always like ask for what you want. You know, if that's more pay, better work, whatever. I mean, you don't want to be raising your hand all the time. Nobody wants a coworker that's doing that all the time. But I think it's really important. And if it's done respectfully and in a straightforward way, like I've never in my life experienced somebody not respecting that. Um, and so that would be my advice. Yeah, that's great. So turning a, a bit to your current position at Viking, um, are there any recent legal or business developments that have been particularly interesting or challenging, specifically in your role or uh, within the company? Yeah, I mean, 
in my role, I think what was really fascinating was just the very quick kind of SPAC bubble slash circus of last summer and how it's kind of come to completely pop. I mean, I, it's been like a very quick and painful cycle um, that obviously involved a lot of legal analysis for us. Um, I remember around this time last year, um, you know, all of our portfolio companies in the span of two weeks started talking about DSPACs and that they were being courted by SPACs. Um, not most of those didn't ever come to fruition, but you know, it was one of those situations where as the lawyer, you've got to really quickly get up to speed on what that means. Um, and what it really meant is, you know, outsized valuations plus the SEC regulatory scheme for selling stockholders is a little bit different um, in the post DSPAC context. And so and it, it's a little bit harder to get out if you were a pre DSPAC stockholder. I mean, it was interesting to me because I wasn't around during like the dot-com bubble. And I definitely was only like tangentially around during the finance, last financial crisis and the kind of real estate bubble. Um, so it was really interesting to just see kind of like a mini bubble just happening. So like before your eyes and you know exactly what it is and where it's going to go. You know, I'm lucky, very lucky that I work for a company and a group of people, especially on the investment side, who are very smart about risk and are very um, clear eyed about it and also listen to their lawyers. Um, so uh, that makes my job a lot more fun. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff, especially in private investments, you know, I like dealing with the constant changing CFIUS and now like their SEC proposals on disclosure requirements. Um, so those are constantly changing. And I think especially on the disclosure, uh, like schedule 13B and G um, proposals, like those will be very interesting to see um, how those actually get implemented. I also found it just totally fascinating how <laughs> the uptick in SPACs led to like in the legal world, all of these people just having to get up to speed within weeks. And all of a sudden, all these, you know, uh, legal trainings on SPACs with SPAC experts. <laughs> really? Who's a SPAC expert? Yeah, no, everyone oh. everyone had to become an expert. And then what's also fascinating to me is like by the time, I just feel like by the time the law firm alerts are coming out, like you're already at the peak of the bubble. <laughs> you know, yeah. like once, once the whole machinery is up and spinning, it's like, okay, this is like the point where people are going to start putting on the brakes. And I think it did happen because selling stockholders and people who were buying in the pipes also were having trouble exiting. And um, that was a very quick and like rude awakening. It's like, oh, we bought these shares in a pipe, but like now we can't really figure out how to sell them. Yeah, yeah. I, I almost wonder if there's going to be a similar sort of um, thing happening with Bitcoin and NFTs and all of that. <laughs> you can't turn around without like some Bitcoin legal article like hitting you in the face. So. It's possible. Yeah. I guess we'll see. So uh, along the same lines, how has COVID and the pandemic and, you know, the international conflicts that are going on and the economy, how have all of those recent things affected you and Viking? Well, putting aside the most recent developments, which I would put, you know, international conflicts in Europe and um, the current market conditions, which are horrible, I think the pandemic... Um, 
you know, I think this is a phenomenon throughout our country, which is that the professional classes, I think, did pretty well during the pandemic. Um, lawyers, um, I think investment funds, uh, we, we're growing uh, and we're kind of evaluating uh, potential other avenues of growth, you know, continuing to hire. So I think like most members of the professional class post-pandemic, like biking was fine. Now, you know, there's an interesting whole other conversation to be had about how what that says about the country and like stratification and all of that, because other segments of the population were very negatively impacted by the pandemic. Um, so, but I, you know, I think the pandemic was very interesting to me in that sense, because everyone I knew at a law firm was busier than they ever had been. Um, you know, at the same time, I know law firms had a lot of pressures of people kind of moving back home and deciding they didn't want to like live the New York big law lifestyle. Um, so then that ended up with associates getting paid more. And so I think it was like kind of an overall positive for the most part, uh, other than, you know, all of the like loneliness and depression from sitting at home all the time. Um, but then, you know, the recent events, we've just, like most people are kind of hunkering down. I think it's hard to tell what's going to happen. I don't think anyone knows, um, you know, how all of these like very negative factors in the economy are going to come together and whether it's going to be a short, painful pinch or if it's going to be a long, protracted, painful period of time. I've never in my career been through a serious downturn. Um, you know, whenever I'm negotiating documents and gross equity rounds, at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to like, these terms only matter when things start to really go sideways. And it's really kind of sometimes hard to get business people to focus on that when things are just going up and up and up and these companies are um, kicking butt and taking names and IPOing next month. And um, mm -hmm. so I think it's going to be an interesting time period where, you know, we may be slowing down on like new capital deployed, but there's probably going to be a lot of fire drills and um, just issues that come out of the woodwork at the portfolio companies. And I remember in March, 2020, when the lockdown was starting, you know, it was similar, like the market dropped and everything kind of froze as people were waiting to see what was going to happen. And that's when, you know, they came out with the PPP loans and everyone had to get smart on the PPP loans and, you know, a few of our portfolio companies that had already been struggling were really struggling. And so it was like a very, very busy, intense period um, just dealing with that, even though there was like not a lot of powder being deployed. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. I've never been through a downturn either. Um, I guess the one upside in the legal career is that there's not going to probably be a shortage of work for us. So <laughs> right. Know, it's always something. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, some uh legal changes to around CFIUS and some other things. What do you see as the most important changes in the law um that and technology and the economy that will impact Viking? Sure. So I think for me, from where I sit, the pace of regulatory change is really fast, which is translating to broader regulations. Um, you know, the regulators are often trying to cast a wide net, and then that ends up being kind of ambiguous in how whatever the regulation is applies to a particular business. Um, and when you're a lawyer, and especially if you're a lawyer in-house, you're kind of left wondering, like, is this really what they intend? Although at the end of the day, you have to comply with whatever they wrote, obviously, no matter what. 
in-house, I guess, really tough because you're part of a business that has to run. You're not just advising clients. You know, you're you're advising your business team that has to make a decision, can't just close up shop. So you have to be really commercial and practical. And um, I just find that a lot of the time that means reading tea leaves sometimes. The hardest part, you know, being a lawyer is exercising judgment. You know, I'm not really sure what this means or I don't really know how big this risk is or how it's going to manifest. But you do the best you can to ameliorate the risk and move on. I think the prime example of this, I already mentioned this, but the PPP loan program and the application process, you immediately had business people um, responding to the news that there was going to be this rescue program saying, yes, our portfolio companies are struggling. They need this. Um, and it's money. It's free money the government's giving out. And as the lawyer, you know, you have to put the brakes on and get a handle on the situation fast to be able to combat that perception. Um, and you end up reading the application process, you know, asking the questions like, what do they really mean by this? Can we give this rep? What does this rep mean in this context? Um, and figuring out a process of how you're going to make those determinations. The PPP loan program was obviously like written quickly because the situation was so intense and dire. Um, but, you know, I think it's a prime example of the intense pressure that can have regulatory uncertainty can bring to bear, especially for lawyers, um, either outside counsel or in-house counsel. Um, and I haven't been around long enough to know if that's just, you know, regulatory uncertainty is kind of on the upswing or if it's always been like this and I'm just joining the club. But I do find that everything seems to be coming out very quickly often very broadly written, and uh, it's hard to digest and figure out how it applies to your particular company, especially if you're being you know, intellectually honest and really trying to follow the letter of the law and, and be ethical in your business practices. Yeah, absolutely. So one final question for you. Are there any efforts or successes at Viking um, around diversity and inclusion that you're particularly proud of? So this is something we've been really focused on. We are focused on it in hiring, um, which I think is just, a, unfortunately, a slow process, you know, making sure the people who are making the hiring decisions get unconscious bias training so that, you know, they're evaluating the candidates fairly. It's very easy to implement at like the lower, more junior levels, but then in order to have a fully diverse firm, there's got to be like a better pipeline and those problems start way earlier and we have no control over that. I, I hear you. The pipeline, the pipeline issue is always like top of mind and how to support people who are in like middle to senior roles. Um, because I agree, it's easier to, it's easier to sort of hire at the junior levels and, um, you know, start off on the right foot, but there's a lot that you can't control in someone's career progression. Yeah. Um, and I will say that like Viking, I think one of the cool things about it is I've seen people rise from even admin jobs to analyst jobs. Um, and so, and I've seen people kind of rise from like a junior operations person to actually being on investment staff. So I think there's like, you know, we're good in that sense that like, if you're really fantastic, you're going to make it, which I think is, you know, also just a huge strength for a company to have. Emily and Katerina, thank you both so much. And thank you to our listeners. For more information about Ropes and Gray's Women's Forum and our women attorneys, please visit www.ropesgray.com women. You can also subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.